Welcome to Scores and Pours, a podcast where you can learn about wine and classical music, hosted by sommelier Jill Mott and radio DJ Emily Reese. Today's episode is about telling stories with wine and classical music based off of the famous novel Don Quixote. Jill talks about a wine from the land of Don Quixote, and Emily explains what a tone poem is using a piece of music called Don Quixote. You'll find a playlist at patreon.com slash scores and pours, and please consider supporting the musicians you hear. We aren't really sure yet. Could be. Could be. This could be the sixth one. Or maybe it'll be the 26th one. Nopa. But the bota. <laughs> the bota is a leather sack that usually carries wine or water, um, in, especially in Spain. They're usually about a liter. And what's great about them is you can... Close them up, toss them in the river, they stay cold. Toss them in the lake, they stay cold. But they always have a little cord, so you can hang it on your person, go to sports matches, bicycle. doesn't matter, but it stays with you. So um, we're drinking a white wine out of the bota. The reason why these are also great was because you and I could sit, you know, um, glassware was scarce. You're not going to be going out to the field with glass, right? Right, yeah. And also... Um, it was expensive, and you and I probably someone was usually sick all the time, right? In family, yeah, within friends. So this sure. you could drink water or drink wine, right? And you never had to sit and put your mouth on it. I might have to do that though. Don't do that. See, no, now I'm, I'm just like all self conscious. You think I'm actually going to do this without laughing? Yeah. There you go. See, it doesn't have to be like super high. It just Mm-mm. needs to be. Mm. Mm. So what are we what are we talking about today, Ms. Reese? Well, you uh, said um, we are going to talk about uh, Don Quixote, which a lot of composers wrote music about that topic because that book was written so very long ago, as you'll be able to talk about more later. Um, but the version of Don Quixote from the classical world that we're going to talk about today is from a romantic composer named Richard Strauss. Looks like Richard, but it's Richard Strauss. And uh, I'm going to talk about what a tone poem is and how we got to tone poems and a little bit about the kinds of stories the music tells. So, yeah. Because people ask me now, they're like, oh, what are you, what are you recording this week? So we're going to talk about tone poems yep. and tone poems in classical music, which mm-hmm. um, I think has much more context already than... I don't know if anybody's actually ever in the history of planet Earth talked about do tone poems exist in wine. <laughs> so it'll be fun if you know to decipher mm-hmm. uh, between you and I if when we taste this wine, mm-hmm. can we safely say there's a tone poem involved, or yeah, yeah. Um, and why or why not? So mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Tone poems and music tell a story, uh, or depending on the composer, could also. Uh, be said to evoke a mood or a thought or an emotion rather than just telling a story. Like a lot of Liszt's, uh, Franz Liszt, the composer, um, Hungarian composer, preferred to call his symphonic poems, and these were predecessors to what Strauss wrote. Um, and he preferred the term symphonic poems, but uh, Lists were all very kind of um, a little less um, tangible than someone like Strauss uh, wrote or even Dvorak. You know, most o- other composers took stories straight from literature or maybe were literally taking a poem or something along those lines. So anyway. When I was explaining it to friends, I said it qu- quite a bit less eloquently than that. <laughs> but I also, I I added in there that there's an element to tone poems that I think, you know, the obviously the composer writes, he or she has an inspiration for something, usually he. And they're inspired by a novel or a piece of theater or something. Mm-hmm. And 
what's what is interesting to me is when I listen to various works, sometimes I get it. Yeah. And sometimes I don't. Yeah. And the more I research, the more I get it. Sure. And I wonder, is it is it in your opinion, do tone poems need context? Like do they need some sort of just like footnotes. You're pitching me that ball this early. Well, are you? And I just think, that, yeah. I mean, why not? Because I think people are gonna. <laughs> well, because, we're gonna give we're gonna give people that, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so it'll be interesting yeah. for them to think. Hmm. If I wouldn't have listened to Jill and Emily to banter for right. however long, right? Would I get it? I think this kind of all goes back to. Uh, and correct me if I'm wrong here, we're talking about whether or not music is absolute, right? Because, I mean, if otherwise, right, you have to go there right away because if it doesn't need a program, then that means that music has meaning independent of any context, right? So if we listen to Strauss's Don Quixote, which we'll do bits and pieces of because it's a long piece, we're really just going to focus on a handful of the variations that tell the story quite well through music and music only, Um but if if you're going to listen to that without context, the only thing you probably could glean from it is that it's perhaps humorous. But the only reason why you think it's humorous and that you would ascribe that meaning to it, in my opinion, is because it sounds like Looney Tunes music. And the reason it yeah. sounds like Looney Tunes music is because Looney Tunes composers like Carl Stallings and such ripped pages straight out of Strauss's notebook in terms of how to uh, uh, turn visuals into sound. No kidding. No, of course. Yeah. I mean, they quote shit from, they quote, they straight up quote classical pieces all the time in when you're watching Looney Tunes. And then, of course, there are the Looney Tunes where they deliberately are like, taking Wagner opera or Mussorgsky or even with Fantasia or something, you know, then there are the times where they definitely did that very deliberately. But, you know, the the super famous composers from back in the day of Looney Tunes were taking all their cues from how the classical composers uh, scored these these things, you know? I mean, that's how they learned how to do it was because they it had already been done. So it's this funny circle, right? Lots of fun stuff in tone poems and kind of how we got to them because, you know, Bach didn't write tone poems. Beethoven didn't write a tone poem. That that was a, a romantic era invention uh, born out of folks like uh, Haydn and Beethoven. So so we'll talk about all those things. Yeah. And was it, was Strauss, was he on, I know that his father influenced his early music quite a bit. Yeah. And, and I... And I, I'm not sure. I know that he was, like so many people of his age, were influenced by Bach. But was there a time where he somewhat, th- not thwarted that in terms of composition, but was there a time where he was doing tone poems and he sort of um, negated Bach's influence? I mean, obviously there's always probably an undertone of some mm-hmm, sort, mm-hmm. but um, do you know anything about that? I don't know if that's a concrete thing we could study yeah. or say I'm not that he sure. was all on tone poems and maybe a couple operas and not well opera and strauss is a whole different thing cuz he also wrote some really amazing wonderful operas his first one which he actually took a break from writing tone poems to work on his first opera was a pretty big failure but then he went on to write some really amazingly uh famous operas like salome and um, Electra, and just do a lot of really wonderful mu- music with voice. Um, I would say more. It's 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 more appropriate to think of it as shunning the idea of a symphony than it is shunning anything else. It's okay. like part of the problem. It's funny how we're just launching right into this here, but I feel like we might as well just keep going. (laughs) Yeah, let's do it. But part of the problem was that when Beethoven, okay, so we've talked about this in other episodes, how, you know, Mozart wrote his 40 plus symphonies. Haydn wrote his 100 plus uh, symphonies. Beethoven wrote nine. And those nine symphonies are sacred. They're like freaking sacred at how 
really well Beethoven perfected that form. And after that, there was seriously like concern in the world of international music that no one would ever be able to match that again. You know, people still, even, you know, decades after Beethoven died, uh, composers were still not, like, their music wasn't as popular as Beethoven's. You know what I mean? Yeah. The symphonies. Even Mozart and Haydn were more popular than modern composers of the time writing symphonies. And that shadow cast for just decades. I mean, and it... And especially the fact that his Ninth Symphony had voice with it, right? Because it's got the choir at the end and the last movement, which nobody had ever done that before. got a choral symphony well to someone like Richard Wagner that was the that was perfection in music what Beethoven did that many years before to combine the strength and full force of an orchestra with the purity and perfection of the human voice you know to combine those two yeah like how could you get any greater than to combine those two things on stage this is why Wagner went on to write so much opera right why he was such an opera nut Also, the symphony, uh, as we've talked about, did have some kind of rules, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, or not rules, more as they, it has expectations. And tone poems, did it kind of throw that to the wind a little tone bit? Tone poems could kind of throw that out. And they could say, you know, then they could be like, well, I'm just going to write one big one movement work. It's just one movement, but it has a lot of tempo changes in it or parts or, yeah. you know, you can think of it that way. So the tone poem kind of evolved... Um, and, and another thing that kind of happened in between that, between the tone poem development and kind of the symphony winding down, although there were certainly 19th century and 20th century composers and 21st century composers who write symphonies, but uh, the, the, the in-between bridge was something called the concert overture, which is, again, just a one-movement work, you know, it's mm-hmm. just to just... The freestyle of the seventeen hundreds or whatever it was. Okay. Exactly. They did they just they're just like, I just want to write some music for orchestra. I don't want to have to write a four symphony work or a three movement concerto. And have it change in this way. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I wanna kinda do do my own thing. And so, you know, even Beethoven wrote standalone concert overtures. wrote several, uh, there are just Elgar, lots of examples of composers in the 1800s writing standalone overtures. And then kind of these things called symphonic poems start to unfold and tone poems. And uh, in there also, you have composers like Berlioz, who was after Beethoven, writing programs to their symphonies or giving their symphonies programmatic names as opposed to Symphony Just, number four, exactly. symphony number five. So okay. we have symphony fantastique instead of symphony number one. The reason why we chose Don Quixote 
we we were kind of um, bouncing back between a few of them. Because there's so many. Yeah, yeah. of course. And um, Ricard Strauss, you know, I was I'm familiar with Don Quixote because I've heard it before, you know, a handful of times, kind of scattered. But I've read um, Don Quixote in 17th century Castilian, which is a beautiful way to read Don Quixote. It's a kind of slightly obsessive way to read <laughs> Don Quixote. But the more I've listened to, not passively, mm-hmm. the um, the tone poem, the more, not all of them actually, but m- a lot of the movements, I'm like, or, or variations, I should say. Yep. I'm like, oh my gosh, that's so right. Yes. Yeah, you know, and, yes. and do we want, how, what's the easiest way to go about this? Should we chat about what actually happens in the book and then go to, or should we kind of, because they're only a minute long, do yeah. we listen to the piece, talk about yeah. the book, and then go back and listen to the piece? Yeah, well, let's explain what you mean by only a minute long, first of all, because the way this particular tone poem is structured is as a theme and variations. So, and it's, even then, it's it's a very uh, late 19th century twist on a theme and variations. By late 19th century, it's like 1897, right? Some Something like that, mm-hmm. that Strauss uh, finished this or wrote it. Um, but, so this, this, he introduces us to the theme of Don Quixote right off the bat. that there's a kind of an interlude before the first variation so that he can introduce us to Sancho Panza's theme mm-hmm. who which is my personal favorite I love Sancho's music because Sancho is the one who's trying to be like dude because you know Don Quixote is is a buffoon and an idiot and doing very stupid things and his friend Sancho is trying to like you know be like hey man don't be so dumb And so Sancho's music to me is just very endearing for that reason. And in Don Quixote's defense, you know, <laughs> he's trying to do this all for the love of country and the mm-hmm. love of his, you know, his, hopefully his his prospect or his love of his, in his mind, Dulcinea. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, people have, um, they've analyzed the character of Don Quixote for centuries yeah. and what seemingly is this sort of idiot knight errant ends up being like there's all these different layers to peel back. Sure. Um, but I think we should just stick with the fact that the overarching is that he's pretty, his his antics are like yeah. really ridiculous. He makes some questionable choices. <laughs> for sure, for sure. And there's a reason why they don't prosper in their yeah. in their attempts. Um, yeah. So uh, we're going to first talk about um, the... It's variation number one, so it's after the intro, it's after the theme, it's after the introduction to Sancho. Uh, onward ho to variation number one, Adventure at the Windmills. The cello being Don Quixote. The bass clarinet is Pancho. You have Don Quixote seeing these giants on the horizon, these giant warriors, but actually, like... Gigantes, like you know, he says these the arms of these giants are two leguas or five kilometers long, they can grow to be, and they are, um, you know, they are threatening our land that is La Mancha and El Toboso. And Sancho is saying, This is kind of a dramatic dialogue between the two. Sancho saying, You know, listen, it's those aren't giants. In <laughs> fact, my knight errant. This, these are, um, they're just big windmills. And Don Quixote saying, how can you be so cowardly? Look at how big they are. And so throughout this dialogue, when you hear the crescendo and things are getting louder. He's getting closer. Don Quixote says, you know what? Screw it. I'm going after them myself. <laughs> There's the windmills. The falling brass are the windmills. Don Quixote charges for it, and he gets hit 
Yes. By one of the huge parts of the windmill, the huge arms, and that what you were alluding to, that sort of that sound of goofiness, you know, that yes. is like obviously he falls and he hits falls the ground. He falls and hits the ground. Um, and this is sort of the aftermath that's obviously mm-hmm. quiet and a little bit like a little embarrassed. A little embarrassed, yep. Mm-hmm. to listeners is would that be beautiful without the description without having read it but is it more beautiful beautiful because there's a or provoking or you want to listen to it a second third time Mm -hmm. now that you now that people know the story I definitely feel that way whenever I'm approaching any kind of program music Ergo, or program music, meaning music that has some kind of program or words attached to it to help you understand it, program music. Whenever I'm listening to program music that's designed to be program music, I want the program because I think it does enhance whatever. You said program like nine times. A thousand times. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) Yes. Um, But you you know what I mean? Like if that's what it's designed to do is to tell me a story then tell me this you got to tell me the story mm-hmm. because doesn't mean don quixote talking to sancho about whether there's windmills or not you know yeah. what i mean that could in a different piece mean you know someone's doing heroin or something i don't know who knows it could, yeah. it could mean anything so so yeah i think whenever you know music has been written to have a program then the program is beneficial to to the music yeah so to relate it to wine Tone poems. Yeah. Um, can tone poems exist in wine? And I thought, you know, the first thing I think many people would argue that are drinkers of, of wine and with some sort of, you know, um, reflection on it is they say, well, terroir, terroir is a story. Like terroir, the, the climatic factors and the history and the human hand that makes wine the way it is um, in some sort of context that it displays a sense of place in your glass. Is that a story? And my argument is that alone isn't a story because you could study a lot sure. and learn that story. Um, and, it, and it can also be propagated by factors that are not natural factors, right, to make a wine taste the way it does. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a little bit going outside of the box of tone poems, but I think when I think of tone poems, it's like something that people couldn't get without a direct story from that winemaker or from, you know, in this case, I have, you know, a very intimate relationship with this winemaker. Mm-hmm. Like, what what does that mean in terms of, you know, someone could taste this wine and have no idea about what I'm about to talk about. They could say, oh, parts of it taste like this region in northern Spain. But without the story, without the leaflet, the context isn't there. So um, this wine that we're tasting is from northern Spain, a region called Asturias. And um, it's quite exemplary from the region because it's uh, very typical grapes, Albarín Blanco and Arbillo, which is actually Chasselas. They have, most people will admit they have no idea how it got there from uh, Switzerland-ish. Chasselas. 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 Yep. And then white, clearly. White. Yep. So, okay. Yep. Both white grapes. And we're quite close to the sea, I think, as the crow flies. Um, it's less than 100 kilometers from the sea, actually less than probably 50 kilometers from the sea. And um, the wine is a little bit salty, a little briny, like mm-hmm. wines from the area are. They're crisp, like wines from the region are. And... It's got primary fruits, meaning, you know, you could sit and apple me and pear me and and green fig me all day, and I'd be like, you're not wrong. (laughs) Um, 
But what makes this wine, I think, adequate for the tone poem is this winemaker was having a really difficult time during this vintage. Um, He has since stopped making wine because Mm -hmm. of how difficult he was having it. And this is the last white that will likely taste from him. Um, he, his parents were ailing. His business partner was just giving him the go around and making life difficult. Local growers in the area were making it difficult. And when I tasted this wine for the first time in the cellar, and I'd had it multiple times before, uh, like multiple previous vintages. Okay. Um, I tasted it and I was like, whoa, I, I won't name his name, but I was like, whoa, I, what happened? Like what happened? And it's not because the wine was bad. It's just so different. It's like if your friend never dyed their hair in the thirty years you knew your best friend, and all of a sudden their hair was like red at sixty. You know, you'd be like, "Whoa, why'd you do that?" Um, this it just tastes radically different. And I, I when I asked, all he did was he shook his head and he was like, "Man, if I could, if I could only, if we only had time." And granted, mm. he went into it a little bit, yeah. but I found out a year later he wasn't going to make wine anymore. And when I taste this, knowing that story, mm-hmm. you're like, oh, that was a difficult place. And the, the mindset of a winemaker, besides trying to make good wine and trying to do the best stewardship you know, you can by your land and by your cellar, yeah. Is like your mind has to be in it, and you have to have the right energy. Yeah. Um, and if things are all over the place, your wine's going to taste like it's all over the place. And man, this tastes like it's all over the place. So, <laughs> cheers to scores and pours. To scores and pours. And tell me what you think. My favorite thing on my first taste um, was that when you smell it, it has a very flat smell to me like it doesn't like it just smells like it smells it doesn't smell like all the things that it tastes like you know what I mean so then you take a taste and then it's like oh wow it's like all these places and it like hits you with all this salty stuff up front but then it like goes into this fruitiness and do you think that if I were to just serve this to you or let's say not me because I probably wouldn't bring you shite to drink right but right. <laughs> let's say you were to get this at you know your corner wine shop or whatever yeah and you took a taste of it, do you think you'd be like, oh, my God, I love this, without the context? Because I honestly think some people wouldn't. They'd taste it and be like, ooh, it's backwards or it isn't fruity enough or, like you said, kind of flat on the nose in a weird way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I think I would like it. And I think I would like it because of what happens after, you know, not of what not because of anything anything that happens at the beginning. Not that those things are bad. Like, the smell is flat, so it's uninteresting to me, I think, you on know, in, in a lot of ways, on the nose. Okay. But then you start the drink, and it's like, hmm, interesting. But then it's delicious. And this is where I think, because I, I contemplated bringing this wine and in tandem mm-hmm. to compare it to a wine that is from the Northwest, Pacific Northwest. It's a sparkling rosé. Made from Grenache. It's delicious. Nice. It's a delicious pet nat. And the first time I opened it, I didn't know that. I smelled it and I was like, holy shit, this smells like smoke. Mm. And I enjoyed it. But of course, I turned around the back just to see if there was any information. And it was like Mm -hmm. during, you know, the collecting of vineyards and throughout the year, we had forest fires. Mm. And so this is basically like a smoked pet nat. Yeah. So... Now, granted, thankfully, I tasted it. I read the back. I had that story. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had a way to, you know, physically look at why this was tasting the way it was. Yeah. Which I think makes for a tone poem, you know? Yeah. Like, it, it, but it also is like the easiest of tone poems, right? It would be like if the entirety of, what we just listened to had those silly, you know, yeah. fumbles at the end. You'd be like, oh, that's Don Quixote falling down again. Oh, that's <laughs> Don Quixote falling down again. <laughs> Whereas I think this is a wine where people wouldn't know right. unless they had yeah. access to the winemaker or myself. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And so it For makes sure. it, it makes it, I think, a, a variation just to use, uh, you know, a word that we're using in 
in a subsect of the tone poem yep. that really requires like furthering the investigation and it made me it confirmed my because for a week I've kind of been musing on can there be tone poems in wine that's not just talking about terroir and everybody's yeah. story yeah and I really think that there can be thankfully mm-hmm. yeah. wines that need some context yes 100% should we go on to variation number 2 I think it might be my favorite one because it's so ingenious how Strauss does variation number two. It's it's really genius. So this is the variation number two. What? Who am I? Am I just like am, am I Bogart and wine and I want classical you to, music? Go I ahead. Want, go ahead. Well, I mean, well, first of all, uh, you're the one who read it in 300 BC Castilian or whatever. So. <laughs> Uh, no good. You can tell the story much better, but um, uh, one of the fun things that Strauss did, and this is it's just sort of direct result of the instruments that he had available to him, because by the time by this is you know almost 1900, we've got trumpets with valves and stuff now, so we've got you know a full array of wind instruments, clarinets and trombones and tenor tubas, which are also the same thing as a euphonium, so it looks kind of like a baritone. It's just a squished, little squished tuba, you know? Cool. Um, And we've got tubas. We've got wind machines in the percussion section. We've got all these things, all these tools and colors that Strauss can use to paint these pictures musically, right? Yeah. That 100 years before, nobody had that shit, so they had to do other things, you know? Yeah. so one of the fun things that Strauss does in this is he does ask for some flutter tonguing. I don't believe he calls it that. I can't remember what he calls it that in the brass, particularly in the trumpets. They do this uh, growling sound, um, except it's not growling. It's to depict sheep because Don Quixote starts to fight a flock of sheep and shepherds, correct? Oh, my gosh. It's such a funny story. <laughs> it's it's such a funny tale, the way it's told, too. Um, and I, we haven't mentioned that. Uh, so Don Quixote is written by Miguel de Cervantes uh, Saavedra, who lived in the 1500s and 1600s um, in Spain, and he traveled, uh, you know, for for war, just like a lot of people traveled during that time um, as part of the military. But he was um, arguably, or maybe not, maybe unarguably, Mm -hmm. Spain's most famous writer. Um, Many people outside of Spain consider uh, Don Quixote the first epic novel ever written. Um, That is contested, but uh, just when you look at the length of it and you look at the incredible variety of the ways that the stories are told and their complexities, yet they seem quite utterly simple at times. Um, and the way the story flows is um, genius and incredibly epic. So I uh, urge you all, if you live especially in the tundra, pull it out <laughs> some winter. It's a great read. But um, just to give Miguel de Cervantes a little mm-hmm, shout out because he sure. deserves it. Um, so yeah, in this variation, uh, number two, we have um, the victorious struggle against the army of uh, the great emperor Ali Fanfaron, which is like this fictitious character, and then that's actually parenthetically sheep. Um, so uh, shall we? This is a parenthetically <laughs> sheep. <laughs> Just, Just listen for when the dawn walks up on the sheep. And starts scaring the shit out of the sheep, and the sheep get pissed. That's the best part of and, this whole variation. And in the in this, I think there's a great representation of distance. You know, mm-hmm. in the previous example, we have you know Don Quixote is is charging up to these windmills, and that happens. Mm-hmm. But this is captured because in the story, it's it is also depicted where um, you know Sancho Panza. First of all, it starts, of course, with Don Quixote saying, like, oh, my God, Sancho, look at on the horizon. Look at all those, you know, the militia is coming, and, you know, it's it's going to be this grand battle. And, you know, he sees, he hears bells 
who knows? Sancho what, does. Uh, Don Quixote. Don does. Like okay. he hears these sounds, but then he also sees all this, these clouds of dust. And Sancho Panza, the wise man that poor Sancho Panza was, was like, you know, um, dude, I, those are sheep and they're herders. And Don Quixote is like, no, listen, you are a coward of cowards, as he says in the book many times in different ways. He says, why don't you go pray over there or go over there and be cowardly? I got this. And uh, we'll, we'll tell you what happens. Let's, let's listen. So here they're talking about the lands and they're talking about... Um, Vir- virtuous things that Don Quixote talks about. Like, the whole book is filled with this stuff. <laughs> and then right here, he says, you have the dialogue between Sancho Panza and Don Quixote in the distance. You can hear him. Are these warriors or sheep? Don Quixote says, well, I'm going to go fight them. And Sancho says, you know, you shouldn't do that. They're just sheep. And Don Quixote says, basically, the hell with you. I'm going. (laughs) Charge! And at this point, he's charging. He's getting closer and closer. Until he's in the middle of it all. (laughs) He's in the middle of these sheep. He's trying to kill the sheep. Meanwhile, of course, the herders are pissed. Yes. The herders are like, why are you trying to kill our animals? They, they stone Don Quixote. They're throwing these old-school arroyos at them. Um, and this is really kind of like the circle of battle between <laughs> Don Quixote and his herders. And now Don Quixote has been stoned by... Yeah, and that's Sancho saying, I told you so. He's, you know, and he's lost, he's lost like multiple teeth. He slugged <laughs> some strong liquor to try to, like, you know, woe his pains. Um, and we're left with that little cute, funny-sounding embarrassment so towards the end. It is so I wonderful. I love how the sheep get all pissed in the middle and just start bleeding at the top of their lungs. It's priceless. And is it it sa- really is. Is it safe to say that, I mean, obviously, I think I've said, is it safe to say in every podcast? Because there's so <laughs> many examples you and I could use. But aren't there, there are hundreds, even thousands of examples we could have, you know, tried to dig into. With, with a tone poem? With tone poem. Oh, there's so many good ones. Even Strauss alone. I mean, he wrote not nine of them. And they're they're really all great. There's one about Don Juan, mm-hmm. which has uh, funny lyrics that musicians sing to it that aren't actually don't actually belong to it. But Don Juan gets laid more than I do, <laughs> yeah, which is great because that's the theme, and that theme will get stuck in your head all day. And that's just Don Juan is a great Strauss po- tone poem. So is Till and Spiegel's Merry Pranks. That one's very short. That one's only like 15 minutes long or something, and that's about. A prankster who ends up dying because he's pranking too much, and then he gets screwed somehow by one of his pranks, hmm. and uh, you know. And so the, there's, there's there's great stories, and then I mean, there's all the other composers too. There's so many other composers who wrote tone poems. I mean, Sibelius, who we've talked about on this show, was really great tone poem writer. Dvorak wrote four, I believe. Um, yeah, there's just there's tons, there's tons. And I would I would parallel the wine equivalent to. Yes, of course, like a a weather factor like smoke or if, you know, if there's a dilute year, um, then, you know, it's rained at harvest or rained a lot right, um, you know, towards the end of the growing season, you'll get wines that are, they're actually, they taste dilute. It's almost like Mm -hmm. the difference between uh, Diet Coke and regular Coke. Diet Coke has this weird softness to it and um well just like a softness and um that was a bad example because diet coke is nothing like good wine um (laughs) sorry diet coke but so um in any event i think more than that that requires such a little footnote yeah that gives a little context but i think it's even more understood if 
like I have a friend who makes wine and he smokes a lot of pot. He loves Jimi Hendrix and he loves Miles Davis. And if you just taste his wine, you'll think, wow, the wine's really good. It's delicious. It's, you know, on point. It tastes like Barbera or it tastes like Riesling or it tastes like this region. That's great. But if you know him and if someone ever buys the wine for me, I'm like, yeah. you know what? Put on <laughs> like, um, uh, you know, listen to Little Wing while yeah. you're drinking this. Yeah. And just listen how like how fluttery this Riesling tastes or, you know, just how <laughs> angular, like listen, listen to Bitches Brew and taste the St. Laurent and just how angular and how just, um, you know, you really need to pay attention because if you don't pay attention to Bitches Brew, it's annoying, you know, and yeah. if you don't pay attention to the St. Laurent, it's annoying. It's like, I don't want to <laughs> drink that. Um, so I think uh, I would, if if you were ever interested in f- trying to find a tone poem of wine, uh, you know, whether it's a sommelier or a local wine shop, to ask, like, do you know a winemaker on these shelves and which wine depicts, you know, a trouble that a winemaker is going through mm-hmm. or their behavior mm-hmm. or did they get crazy one vintage? And for I have a friend who he was making wine one year and what was going to be a rosé was for sure red wine. Why? Because <laughs> I know he was partying and he was busy uh-huh. doing a hundred other things mm-hmm. and... Now we have a story of why that rosé is red. But if you were to just buy it off the shelf, you'd be like, this is a delicious red wine. Even though it says rosé right on the label, it is dark red. And so the tone poem comes where you would just taste it and be like, well, I don't don't know why, but it's delicious. Um, So uh, all about context with the tone poem. All about context with the tone poem. Can I ask before we wrap up, when did tone poems start – to fall out of quite popular use? I don't did think they, ever? they really did. No, okay. I, I think, um, uh, yeah, no, I, I really don't think that they that they did. Okay. I think that's the, just the easiest way to say that. Okay. Yeah. I thought, I thought I had read somewhere that they sort of had a falling out and then they kind of, people got back on the horse. And it's I'm quite sure. possible that in the early 20th century, they kind of did go away for, for a little bit just because, uh, you know, things have to for a bit before they're cool again, right? You know what I mean? So Very true. that's probably how that worked. And then I think, you know, a lot of composers realize what a useful device it is. It is, I mean, I, there are so many things to, to be said about the difference between a tone poem and a symphony, because again, this is this this tone poem by Richard Strauss is forty minutes long. That's nothing to shake a stick at. That's a lot of music, mm-hmm. especially considering the size of the orchestra he wrote that for. You know, you've got a full brass section. We're talking, you know, multiple horns, more than one trumpet. You know, trombones, tubas, tenor tubas. Uh, you know, full wind section with multiple clarinets. So good. Multiple oboes, English horn. We've got bassoon, we've got contrabassoon, we've got clarinets, bass clarinet, you know, E-flat clarinet, all these different, just this array of instrumental tools that he had. And you wonder if he did that because he, um, like, in order to display the complexity that is Don Quixote, you can't just have a little concerto. Yeah, you no, know, for it sure. It needs to be like full on. To be to be fair, and I, you know, someone should figure this out for me, so I don't have to. I would okay. assume that there aren't very many tone poems that are written for just string orchestra. You know what I mean? Like tone poems, I would imagine are going to have some more colors in there, some wind instruments, okay. some brass instruments, some percussion. You know, I don't know. Plus, too, that was just the era when they when they were as popular as they were. You know, in the Romantic era, in the late 1800s, and I mean, all the big composers were writing them. So Rococo, they all had. They all, <laughs> Sorry, it's just something that mentally came. Yeah. It's probably I'm, I'm yeah. some decades off. Well, give me another taste of this. I recommend. Um, you know, I, I don't want to get into it too much, but there are some really, uh, just really beautiful moments in in this that I recommend people explore on their own. Uh, one of them, fill that bota, would you? <laughs> yeah, seriously, just fill it. Yeah, do, what were you recommending then? Um, just in terms of the the variations, you know, definitely listen to all of Don Quixote and some of the things you can listen for. Um, 
first of all, his his uh, the woman he wants to be in love with, <laughs> uh, that he wants to conquer, uh, she has her own theme as well. And so I'll make sure that we play that right now. kind of moments throughout where the Don, who is represented by cello, plays her theme because he's thinking of her, which is really sweet. Um, uh, One of the times that happens is in the fifth variation. Sixth variation is when you meet her for the first time and he sees her and he's like, who the hell are you? You're not who I thought you were. (laughs) And Sancho's like, dude, that's exactly who you think it is. It's exactly who you're supposed to, you know, rescue, whatever. And one of the fun things that Strauss does to depict that, uh, I guess, kind of awkward interaction is that that variation is in 5-4. That's not how Strauss scores it. He scores it as 2-4-3-4, but it's 5-4. So five beats per measure, and it lends this really awkward, like, dopey vibe to Dulcinea, Dulcinea, which is really funny. You know, she was like, she she harvests wheat, and, you know, according to Don Quixote, you shouldn't be harvesting anything. She's got a big mole, and he's (laughs) like, well, if she's got a mole there, she's got to have moles elsewhere, (laughs) you know, that are like, you know, he's trying to, he's trying to like find some, some things to be excited about. And he turns on her in that variation. He gets really mean and storms off. Sancho like trying to explain to him and in this particular part Sancho is represented by a viola and the viola is like look man no she's fine she's fine and he's trying Sancho's trying to make her not feel like a total piece of shit because <laughs> John was just such a dick to her meanwhile meanwhile 800 pages have passed just <laughs> letting you know, you know? <laughs> <laughs> One where they're flying is fantastic or pretending to fly is great. It has some of my favorite horn parts uh, of all Strauss, and Strauss has great horn parts, but some wonderful horn parts in the seventh variation. variation is the boat trip, which is fun. That's in 6-8, which is a very common way to depict water in music, so that's so where, cool. where you hear that. Um, uh, the ninth very 
investigation is where he sees a couple of monks. So he sees a handful of monks that he thinks are like stealing uh, this woman, right? Holding a woman hostage, or he needs to save. Maybe Man, we'll I'd skip have to. That I'd one. have to go. I'd have to go back. Maybe we'll stop. Stop that one. But these are all, I believe, in the second book. So it's there are two parts two books, to, yeah. to Don Quixote. Or first and a second part, and the second part is quite. Um, it's a little bit like Gotha's Faust, where the first part is definitely of one nature, and then the second part of that is almost like it should just not even be called Gotha's Faust. It should be called mm. Gotha's something else. Mm. And Don Quixote, the second part, is quite different than the first part in how it's laid out for the reader, in how the story is told. I mean, it's still... You can, you can definitely tell it's the same writer and the same story, but it's very, very different. Um, so just to throw that out there. Anyway, let us know if you have questions. We'll happily answer any of them. Here's to tone poems. Tone poems. And here's to scores and pours. I'll and pass the bota. Don Quixote. And Don Quixote. In 15th century Castilian. Thanks, Miguel de Cervantes. Thank you for listening to episode three of Scores and Pours with Jill Mott and Emily Reese. You can find links and information about this episode at patreon.com slash scores and pours. We're on Instagram at scores and pours, all one word. Edited by Emily Reese and Jill Mott. Our producer is Sam Keenan. And I'm Paul Beach. Scores and Pours is a production of June Media Incorporated. <laughs>